Uh, what do all these book series, especially the book series, but even the movie franchises, what do these have in common? It's, it's that they have one author, at least usually. Normally, they, they all have one author that's writing uh, these different books or these different movies, and it's coming from one person, one man or one woman. But even more than that, even more than them sharing this uh, common author, uh, these book series or these movie franchises, they, they also they have one story. If you think about any of these things, any of these series that I mentioned, there's really one main story running through them all. Even though you might have page upon page, chapter upon chapter, book after book, it's one story that's threaded through them all. Even if it spans multiple generations in, in the story. It's similar with the Bible. With Scripture, there are, however, many authors of Scripture. There are many authors, but yet at the same time, there's one author. And same with the stories of the Bible. There are many stories in the Bible. Think of all the different stories that you can think of, especially going through the the Old Testament. Uh, From Adam and Eve to uh, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau... Um, the life, the stories in the life of Abraham, uh, Moses, Exodus, all through Numbers, the judges, the kings, of course, Saul, David, Solomon, uh, the exile into Babylon, uh, the return from exile out of Babylon in Ezra and Nehemiah, all these stories, and you get into, of course, the, the story of Jesus himself. Uh, and the different sagas within that, there's you know, the times where he preached, the times where he did miracles, when he was in, the, in his Perean ministry to the Gentiles, uh, to the Samaritans, uh, the Samaritan woman there at the well. So many different stories, right? But yet, there is one main story of Scripture. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, this week and next week. How there are many authors, but one author. How there are um, many stories, but one true central story. And many characters in the Bible, yet one main character of the Bible. We will be arguing, of, of course, that uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is... The central story. The, the story of Scripture and the story of history, even outside of Scripture, all things, all history is with Christ at the center. That's why we are a Christ centered church. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping the gun here, actually. So let me. Let's get into Colossians 1. This, this is beginning the first point in your notes there. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself would come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Such a jam-packed, full passage. We're going to slowly kind of take this apart. That's why we're going to look at this topic of the Christ-centeredness of Scripture today and next week. We see hear that uh, all things have one goal, and that one goal of all things is Christ. Christ, of course, is the main subject of this passage. The name Christ comes from the Greek word Messiah, so wherever you see Christ in the New Testament, you can literally translate that Messiah. That is hearkening back to this Old Testament promise of an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ. That whole Old Testament theology of anticipation of one special person is all wrapped up in the name Christ. That's why we like to use the word or the name Christ, because there is much within that. There's a whole theology behind that. Because his, his name is not simply Jesus, right? He didn't begin in the manger. He didn't end at the cross. He's the Christ. His anticipation, his, his coming forth was from long ago. And so that's why we like to use that word, that name, Christ. Here it says in verse 15, in verse 15, that this Christ, he is the image. He is the image of the invisible God. Image here is icon, the Greek word icon. He is, that, is, uh, that means the, the invisible, or excuse me, the visible expression of the invisible God. That's how to best understand Christ being the image of God. He is the visible expression or manifestation of the invisible God. That's how we understand that. We understand from 1 Timothy 6.16. Somebody read that for me. 1 Timothy 6. 16, or excuse me, 
Yeah, 616. Amen. Speaking of God the Father here in this passage, this is God the Father. So this, this who is, is the Father specifically? The Father alone possess, possesses immortality and, and dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. So nobody has seen the Father, right? This is, this is speaking about uh, throughout the course of history. Uh, I'll just, uh, I'll let you brothers control that. It's glitching on me. No one has seen, that's speaking about throughout the times of history, right? In, in time, in human experience, nobody has ever seen the Father. And when it says no one can see, that's speaking about ability, or possibility. So in actuality or in the, the, the reality of the matter is that nobody has ever seen the Father. But there's a, a, a more profound reality behind that is that it's impossible for anybody to see the Father. Nobody can see the Father. Because, because why? He dwells in what? Unapproachable light. The light of God is so pure, so great, so powerful, so holy is the main idea of light. Holy. God is so holy that nobody can approach him. But yet, turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 18. Or it might be up there. <laughs> I shouldn't say turn with me because it might be up there. Somebody read John 1.18 for me, please. No one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, he has explained him. All right, thank you. No one has seen God at any time. So we're seeing that truth carry over, as it were, from 1 Timothy 6.16, right? So you can insert all of 1 Timothy 6.16 into that first phrase. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. Or excuse me, yeah, no one has seen God at any time. That is that previous verse, verse 16, wrapped up in here in these few words. Why has no one seen God at any time? Because he dwells in unapproachable light. Why has no one seen God at any time? Because no one can see God. But yet, we see the, the second half of this verse unfold in amazing reality. 
even though no one has seen God or can see God at any time, yet the only begotten God. So there is this God, but yet a begotten God that comes out, that that proceeds forth. That's the idea of begotten. He proceeds forth from the Father. So there there is God the Father, and then there is this begotten God of the Father, He is in the bosom of the Father. So this begotten God is in the bosom that is uh, intimately acquainted with the Father. That is, has a access that nobody else has. Right? Because why can't nobody see God at any time? He's unapproachable. Good. But yet there is this begotten one who very much approaches the Father. See the difference between us and this begotten one? It's, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The begotten is the only begotten. We see in uh, John three sixteen. That the Father gave His only begotten Son. That's who this is. The only begotten Son, Jesus. This one has special access to the Father. And not only does He have that access that we don't have, He comes to us in flesh. And what does He do? He says, He has explained Him. He has explained Him. That is, he has exegeted the Father. Uh, it's basically what, what, a, what you do when you study Scripture. You take it apart and you see what's really there in all its detail. You break it down. And, and what, a, what a preacher and a teacher does is they do that in the study, and, but then they expose the Word of God to you in an understandable way. That's to exegete. That's what the Son of God does with the God the Father. Because he has a special access to the bosom of the Father, because he is God, in fact, he is able to, as it were, break down the character and the nature of God the Father. And then he comes to us in flesh. That's why it says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When he dwelt among us, when Christ dwelt among us, he was explained, he was like a, a preacher laying out the nature of God before you and explaining it in fine detail. Exposing, explaining. That's why it says, he, the begotten God, has explained him the unapproachable God. So, all that to say in Colossians 1, when it says, in verse 15, that He is the image of the invisible God. That's what that means. 
He makes the invisible God visible. And he's able to do this because he is God. He is the only begotten God. Jesus is the visible expression of God. This word image, it wasn't always considered something distinct from the object represented. Like uh, the way that we think of an icon or an image is it's a, it's a, it's a photocopy, right? We take a picture of somebody, we, we go to Costco and we print it out, right? That's their image. That's not the idea here exactly. It's not a photocopy, it's not a replica In New Testament times, a a new emperor, a new ruler would print new coins and install statues with his likeness, with his image. But it wasn't just for a memorial. It was to serve as a reminder of, of who the ruler was in that time. Even though the, the emperor, the new emperor, was at a great distance from that town where his statue was or where his coin was used, even though he was great, at a great distance from that, that statue or that coin with his image on it communicated authority, communicated all the power and all of the rule that that emperor has is... is uh, active and present in that location, even though he physically isn't in there, in that location. That statue is, is, like, a, is like a flag in the ground, saying, this is still my land, and you will still obey me. You're not obeying the statue. You're obeying who the statue represents. Right? It served as a reminder to the identity of the, of the sovereign ruler even though he was at a great distance. So what Jesus does is he brings clarity to these fuzzy notions of who God is and what God is like. So God dwells in unapproachable light in the heavens, right? And we need to understand and have a relationship with our sovereign ruler, our king, God. And so he gives us his image to communicate. My authority is here in this world. Here is what I am like. Not a statue with my face, but a person. So that's what Jesus does. He brings clarity to our fuzzy thoughts about what God is like. This isn't in the notes, but John... Since we're taking our time. Remember in John 1, we were just there. And this is still kind of the same theme, really, about explaining who this Jesus was or is. We have the, the Jesus' public ministry, his first converts in John 1. And then... Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. 
And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. See, Nathaniel was, was from South Vallejo. <laughs> Nathaniel was from East San Jose. <laughs> he knew. Can anything good come out of that place? What does is, what is Philip say? Come and see. See for yourself. And Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him, verse 47, and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are, you are the Son of God. You are King of Israel. He's taken aback. Like, wow, this, this guy is serious. He, he is who he says he is. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You will see greater things than these, he says. He's saying, you haven't seen anything yet. And here, here's what I believe is the, uh, the banner over the Gospel of John. Verse 51, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the Gospel of John in one verse, if you think about it. What is Jesus saying here? He, what you see in the life of this man, Jesus, as we understand to be the God-man, the Son of God, what, happens in, what happened in his life was heaven opened up, and instead of like that dream in the Old Testament where there was a ladder and the angels were ascending and descending, right? That dream of Jacob that he had, how there is this, there is this connection between God and man. And there, he's not sure what that connection is, but there is some sort of a ladder, some sort of a connection and access between heaven, between God and, and, and sinful man. And this activity of the angels ascending and descending on this ladder is, is the activity of God with his people, with his creation. That God is involved with creation. Jesus says, that ladder is me. It's me. The connection between God and man is me. The, the access from man to God is me. And he says, you're going to see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, not on the ladder, but on me. What does that mean? You're going to see what happens when, essentially, if, if I can say it this way, you're going to see what happens when heaven and earth collide. That's the Gospel of John. When heaven meets earth, and when there is this connection between heaven and earth, it is Jesus. 
What, what happens when God interacts with man? What happens when heaven is involved in the affairs of earth? Simply look at the life of Jesus and you'll get your answer. I love this. So, Calvin, John Calvin says, Christ shows us God's righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, or in short, his entire self. The entirety of God. That's what Christ shows us. Think about it. All the qualities that you see in Jesus in his life. His righteousness, his goodness, his wisdom, his power, his love and his patience with his disciples. His courage and bravery. His commitment. His devoutness. His friendship. The way that he talks with people. All of these things. We're seeing an explanation of the nature of God himself. That's what you see in the life of Christ. All right. I don't know how we got there. But Colossians 1. Again, if we can try and stay on track. Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn. This does not mean that he was the first thing born. Right? It's not what it means. When it says he is the firstborn of all creation, uh, the first century people, people to whom this was written, understood this term of firstborn to mean not just um, first in order, not just first in order or sequence, but first in priority. First in priority. That's what firstborn means. Let me explain it to you very, very easily how you can see this. In the first century, in, or in this time, in biblical times, the, and even in some cultures today, still, a daughter can be a first child, right? A daughter can be the first child born in some cultures and in this time. But yet, if a son is born next, the son is the firstborn. He's first in priority. He, he, gets, he is the heir. He carries the family name. That's what it means to be firstborn, first in priority. So even, a even though a daughter is first in order, first child born, the, if the second son or the third, or if the second or the third child is born, is a, is a male, that male child is, would have the title firstborn because he was the heir. Psalm 
says, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Specifically, he's talking about David, right? And the king of the land. The king is made the firstborn. He has that role, that title, that position in Israel. So the eternal God, excuse me, the eternal Son of God is not firstborn because he was first made by God. In fact, he was the one who made everything. The eternal Son of God is the creator of everything. It says that in the next verse, in verse 16, for by him all things were created. So the first, he, was, he is the firstborn of all creation, and, and the reason why he's the firstborn of all creation, or the proof, is that by him all things were created in the heavens, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things have been, been created through him and for him. His position in relation to all of creation is that of creator and ruler. It's a position of firstborn. It's a role. So he's the, he's the first in rank. He's the first in honor. He has the rights of the firstborn son is what this is saying. Put it simply, Jesus outranks all of creation. Jesus outranks all of creation. To put it simply, we're going somewhere with this. Track with me. No matter what kind of thing in creation, no matter what kind of powerful object in all of creation, Christ is over. He says whether it's visible or invisible, they were created by Christ and are therefore subject to him. So whether you can see it or not, it's under his rule and authority. One author says this, that this settles once and for all the status of those numerous heavenly powers that fascinate and frighten people in Paul's day and often our own day. No attempt should be made to distinguish between the various authorities listed in verse 16. Generally, they refer to angelic, demonic, and earthly positions of power or authority. But all the church needs to know is that such existence and power as they possess is entirely dependent upon Christ our Lord. It follows that there is nothing that such powers can do to influence or enrich Christ. For indeed, some Christians have appeared to suppose in their intercessions and prayers to the so-called saints or even angels... You see, all the saints throughout time, all the angels, are but the creation of Jesus Christ. They serve Him and are in need of Him. We don't need to go to them 
We instead need to go to the Son alone. We are given that access to Jesus Christ. So Christ is above all those things, meaning he deserves your allegiance above all those things. Things that you can see, things that you can't see. He is worthy of your devotion up over and above all those other things. Also, verse 16. We see that Christ is the goal of all things. All things have been created through him and for him. So Christ is the goal of all things. Everything finds its ultimate purpose in Jesus Christ. He, think of it this way, that he is the hub of the, of the wheel of creation. He is the center. All things revolve around him. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. We are in a new era, Christian. You're in an age unlike any other age throughout all of history, a time where it is leading to the summation of, of all things. You could think of all of history and and all of your life added together with a big equal sign Christ is at the other side of that. You add everything up, all of history, all the events, all the pandemics throughout the ages of history all the joys and trials of your life, all your money, all your goods, your worldly possessions, everything sums up to him. He is the goal of it all. He is the end product. His glorification, his rule, his worship is the sum of it all. That's where it's all going. All of history is leading there. Just look at Revelation 5. All of history is on track. The pandemic didn't derail God's plan for Christ to be the sum of all things. Right? He still is. He still needs to be in your life. Not only this, but he's a sustainer of all things. In Colossians Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he is before all things in that there is, was never a time where Jesus was not. But he is also the sustainer of all things, meaning that the created universe remains what it is. There are laws of nature that are dependable, that we can, we can put into an equation. And those equations are true and real because God, Jesus Christ, is sustaining and upholding all of creation. He holds every atom in its place. 
And every molecule answers to Jesus Christ alone. Which is why scientists can make an equation for the law of gravity and can know exactly what that law is like and how it affects the things of the wings of a bird or a rock. The, the laws of nature are fixed because Christ has fixed them and he holds it there. If, if he let one thing change, those laws would no longer be laws. They would be possibilities. But because of him, they're laws. They're sure, they're true. This is the supreme power and authority of Jesus Christ. He's, and he's the purpose of it all, Christian. He's the goal of it all. He's worthy, isn't he, of our praise. So he's over all creation and he's over the new creation as well. Look, look what it says. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Remember, he just talked about him being firstborn over all creation. But here again, he, he says again, he's firstborn. You see, just being redundant, repetitive. No, he, he's, he has a role over creation, but he also has a role over this new creation as firstborn from the dead, as the resurrected Messiah. He is the head of the church. The church is the new creation. We're the beginnings of that. We're the sneak preview of the new heavens and the new, and the new earth. Did you know that? He's the head of the body, authority, and source. He is the authority over the church. He is the source of all things good in the church. He's the source of power and change and effectiveness and any spiritual quality is found in, the, in its source in Jesus Christ himself. He gives life to the church and he steers it wherever he wishes. The church is utterly dependent upon Jesus for spiritual life, vitality, and growth. We're going to actually see that in the next hour. And Jesus is the beginning of this new humanity, this church, this new Humanity. It's just because he is the firstborn of, of the dead. He is a first with an imperishable body. He, he was not the first person to be resurrected from the dead, right? But he was the first to have this kind of resurrection to imperishableness. There's been nothing like this in history. Why? why? Why does Paul explain it this way? Why is it fitting that God the Father would orchestrate history so that his Son is in first place above creation and this new creation? Why the fall and salvation and redemption so that he could not only have this position of firstborn over all of creation, but now this new creation that 
is made new out of the fall. Why would he do this? Why is it this way? It is so that Jesus Christ would be first. At the end of verse 18, so that, that's purpose, so that he himself, Jesus Christ our Lord, will come to have first place in everything. That's why. That's why. That's why things are the way they are. You can insert why, why COVID-19, right? The answer is so that Jesus Christ would have first place in everything. Why did I lose my job? It's so that Jesus Christ would have first place in everything. Now, of course, there are lesser things that he's doing. He's teaching and he's going to use you like he used Job. When he places you in a trial, he, he used you to, to show his faithfulness and his goodness. There's other sub-reasons, right? But, but ultimately, why? We want these ultimate answers, don't we? This is the answer. Why did Donald Trump not get elected back into office? So that Jesus Christ would have first place in all things. Why in the world is Biden president? So that Jesus Christ would have first place in all things. Why did we go through what we went through? As a family, as a church, as individuals. So that Jesus Christ would have first place in all things. Why did I uh, lose my child? Why, did, why is my child wayward? Why do I have cancer? So that Jesus Christ would have first place in all things. That's why. That's why. He's the reason of it all. In other words, the telos of history, the goal and the completion of history and God's redemptive purposes is the recreation of the entire cosmos. And all things will become what it was intended to be on account of Jesus Christ. He is at the center of the cosmic recreation so that Jesus would be the preeminent one. Now, as God, the eternal Son, He has always enjoyed supremacy as Jesus Christ, though, he, the enfleshed and resurrected God, he has been given first place in everything. His supremacy, his authority extends over all peoples, things, places, and times. Christ-centeredness in ministry, in life, in the way that you read the scriptures, is the result of Christ's universal supremacy and authority. All of life and ministry and scripture must therefore be consciously related to him. As we learned last week, he must be the cornerstone. Genuine conversion leads to a complete reorientation of life with Christ at the center. How much more so 
Christian ministry, the church, and scriptures. Augustine wrote, you have that quote there, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. I love that quote. It's good. This is the Son of God. Now, if that is what God the Father is doing with all things, all creation, all history, right? Why would he write a book for us and reveal himself to us, explain things to us, and that, that, that mega story where Jesus is the source, sustainer, and goal of it all, why would that not be reflected here? It must be, right? Look at what Scripture says about Jesus Christ himself. He is the center of it all. All things are for him, leading to him and from out of him. It's the same thing with the word of God. All right, so our Christ-centeredness of Scripture, our Christ-centeredness of preaching, Christ-centeredness of ministry doesn't just come out of nowhere. It is rock-solid in the historical plan of God, in His purposes, His divine decree. I will glorify myself, and I will glorify myself in that I glorify my Son. That's what history is about. And so... That's what the Bible is about. It's about him. So you can be confident as you read the Old Testament and, and you're told, I, I, you know, it's all about Jesus, but I'm reading these laws and it doesn't feel like it's about Jesus. I don't see the word or the name Jesus or Christ or Messiah or I don't see these things here. What do you mean it's all going to him? I don't, I don't see it. Well, in the in next week, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at um, how we can be confident that Christ is the center of Scripture, and what that actually looks like in Scripture. We're going to see that there is this grand story, this grand uh, narrative that God is telling us. And Jesus Christ is the main character. And we're gonna, I'm going to give you, by God's grace, tools where you can actually read the Old Testament, especially this comes into play. We're going to read the Old Testament and be able to recognize Jesus, be able to pick him up and, and, and see him there in the pages right in front of you. All right, But we have to go through this first to have this, this unwavering commitment, right? Because it, it will get difficult, right? Uh, well, we have to have this unwavering commitment and, and, and being convinced that Jesus is the center of everything, especially the Bible, okay? So let me pray. Um, well, b- before I pray, we have just a few minutes. Any questions about that or comments? I know it was kind of a preachy version of an equipping hour this morning, but any questions or comments about this? Okay.
Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, that you have given us a peek behind the curtain, as it were. You don't just tell us, go to that building, listen to messages, sing these songs, and go through life, and don't worry about what it's all about. Just, just do what I tell you to do. Lord, you're, you're not like that with us, but you tell us where this is all going. You tell us the motivation behind it all. You tell us your heart desire, your heart motivation behind everything that you do in this world. And, and Lord, we pray that your passion, your desire, your motivation would transfer to us. That we would have that same passion, the same motivation, that same desire to glorify the Son in our lives. Lord, this is where you're going. This is what you're doing. You are on track to glorify your Son. And, and we have a choice, Lord. We can either get on board or stand on the sidelines. We can either be about the glorification, the exaltation of Jesus Christ and join you in this, or we can sit it out and not be used. Lord, I pray that you would grip our hearts with this, that the central theme of history would be the central theme of our life, that Jesus Christ would be the source and, and the, the end goal of everything that we do, that our decisions would be governed by him, that our heart would long for him, that our desires would be oriented, oriented towards him. Lord, change us. Lord, we always need to, to remember where north is so that we stay on track, Lord. So I pray that you would accomplish that purpose this morning. Be with us as we enter into the next hour, as we hear your word, as we worship together in song, as we fellowship and and share Jesus Christ together. I pray, Lord, that you would bless it. It would be a sweet time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.